this summer, we're focusing on some of the strong characters in Scripture. And today, it's the turn of the unlikely hero, hero Gideon. So we've got our slides up here. Um, we couldn't get the clicker working this morning. We were chuckling when we had our prayer time this morning. Um, we were talking about weakness and how God's strength is made perfect in weakness. I've got hay fever this weekend. Can't get the clicker working. Pets never touched a keyboard for 10 months. But God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. So if you're wondering why I'm going to do this all the way through the service today, that's my sign to Alexander to move to the next slide. Because the clicker's not working. So if I do that, then he start doing it back to me. <laughs> okay. Before we read the story, I would like to think of jobs that we really wouldn't like to do. Now, don't worry. You're not going to get an interview this morning for any of these jobs. I just want to open up your minds for a moment uh, and set the scene for Gideon's story. Now, the first job that I really wouldn't want to have is that of a ticket conductor on a train in India. That definitely looks like a hard shift to me. And I don't fancy that kind of danger work. And I really don't fancy being part of the air sea rescue service in South Africa. (laughs) I used to work in the construction industry, but I really wouldn't fancy being an electrician in Eastern Europe. Alexander, you work in electricity, do you know? Have you ever tried any of these stunts? No. No. <laughs> now, I've flown to America a few times to speak in conferences, but I wouldn't want the job of training their pilots over there. And I do have a love for animals. But I wouldn't like the job of a vet in Asia. I think I had someone stuck in his throat. I also love cars, but I don't fancy the job of a roadside mechanic in South America. But I'll tell you the job that I definitely never want to have is working on a shooting range with the North Korean army. happy he's working, eh? <laughs> now the reason we're looking at these pictures of jobs that we'd never want is because the story of Gideon starts with God giving Gideon a job that he didn't want. So let's read the story of Gideon, the unlikely hero. So today we're reading from, it's the book of Judges, and we're reading from chapter 6, starting at verse 1. You wouldn't want the job of Simon Cowell. (laughs) Oh, judge, he's Simon Cowell. Very, very good. 
So Judges chapter 6, verse 1. We're not reading the story of Simon Cowell today, no. It is the story of Gideon. So feel free to follow along as I read the scripture. Let's hear the word of God. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, in caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and we will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, 
I have seen the angel of the, the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizarites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished, with a share pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, 
he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura sent a servant, went down to the outpost to the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and his interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given Midianites' camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, following my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just before they changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beshita, towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Mehola, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Bara. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Bara. And finally, reading from chapter 8, verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again during Gideon's lifetime. The land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word.
I should have said you should have been sitting comfortably. I've been using a process called Lectio Divina, which has been around since the third century. And Lectio Divina means that you read a scripture and you read it again and again and again over a long period of time. And sometimes you focus on particular verses and sometimes you're prompted to focus on a particular word. I've been reading this passage now for two months. And the purpose of Lecta Divina is for God to really speak to you about this passage, to really give you deep insights, almost hidden insights, if you like. So over the last two months, I believe I've received 20 different insights on this passage. But don't worry, I'm not going to share 20 points this morning, because we'd have to have lunch together and maybe get ready for dinner. So I'm going to point out three things, three things um, from the passage this morning. So three main points. And the first point I would like to highlight is this. It's to take responsibility. You are part of the problem and part of the solution. So I don't know if anybody's taking notes. I'll read that again. Take responsibility because you are part of the problem and part of the solution. I enjoy working in sports psychology. I don't do so much of it now as I did a number of years ago. Um, but this sports psychology does provide a key illustration for this passage on Gideon. In sports psychology, the only way you can improve someone's performance is if they take responsibility for their performance. By that, I mean taking responsibility so that they understand that when they've had a bad performance, it's their problem. It's their fault. And if they can realize that and realize that they can do better then they become part of the solution if they change what they're doing. Now, I've had some cracking excuses given to me by football players over the years when they've had a bad performance. I've worked with hundreds of them. Um, and so I'm going to give you a little list of the excuses that players have given to me when they've had a bad performance. And the man just said, Stephen, you need to work with this guy one-to-one. -one. He's not given us what we need. So we sit down and have a chat and say, why did you play so badly? So here's the list that I've conducted over the last eight years. They will blame the referee, the manager, the agent, the fans, the press, the physio, the kit man, the nutritionist, the ticket office, who didn't they get their tickets right? <laughs> the chairman, the training, the tactics, the weather, the pitch, their teammates, their wife, their girlfriend, the length of their contract, the value of their contract, their bad luck at the bookies. <laughs> or even the fact, the fact that they weren't allowed tomato ketchup with their pre-match meal. <laughs> Honestly. I wasn't allowed tomato ketchup for my meal, so it just put me in a bad mood. Now, these are all things that they have little or no influence over. 
So if you focus on the things that you have little or no influence over, then you're hoping that they're going to change. You can't control that. And so if that's the only way you want to improve, you're hoping things are going to improve, but you're not actually taking responsibility and changing what you can change. I would tell them in order to improve, and here's a quote, you need to realize that your attitude and your preparation and your unwillingness to take on board coaching is part of the problem. Forget all these other excuses as you have no influence over them. Focus on what you do have an influence over. You, your attitude, your preparation, and your response to the coaching you're given. If you improve these things, you will become part of the solution as you have the ability, the potential, and the opportunity to do better starting right now. So when players take on board that message, amazing things happen. So, for example, the first picture there was Stephen Thompson scoring against Celtic for St. Mirren in the League Cup semi-final. Um, I worked with St. Mirren for a short time. Uh, under the same manager, they had played Celtic 10 times and never even scored a goal against Celtic. And the manager says, Stephen, I want you to work with these players for a week because we don't want to get humiliated at Hamden against Celtic, who've got a budget 15 times bigger than ours. Can you bring something special out of the players? I think they've got the potential to do something. So that was the message I gave them. You need to take responsibility. You're better than you've been playing. Take responsibility. Sacrifice yourself for your teammates. Believe that it's possible. And they went on to score three goals against Celtic that day and won the League Cup semi-final and went on to win the League Cup itself. And many of these players have now came on to become international players and play in the best league in the world. In fact, one of these players just signed for a team in English Premiership last week for £10 million. When you take responsibility in your own life for your performance, amazing things happen. Amazing things happen. In the passage, we learn that Israel was not taking responsibility for the state of the country. In verse 6, they had walked away from God for many years, seven years in fact, and were now blaming God for not doing something miraculous to save them. Even though it was them who had walked away from God, God had done nothing wrong. It was the Israelites that were causing the problem. So God let Midian invade the land. But, and even Gideon, when he meets the angel of the Lord, he starts to whine. Uh, why have you done nothing to save us? Why, why are we in this state? But as we get to verse 13 and 15, he starts to take some responsibility in verse 17, and then he follows the Lord's instructions with the offering. Then he takes on the job he didn't want, to take down the altar of Baal and Asherah, the false gods. Um, but he does it at night because he's a bit afraid. In fact, Gideon's so afraid, even when we see him first in the passage, he's afraid that he's going to get seen by the Midianites, that he doesn't thresh the wheat in the fields. He takes it away at night and takes it into a wine press, an indoor building, to thresh the wheat so the enemy can't see him. So he's a kind of a scaredy guy. He lives in fear. But then after doing, uh, taking down that altar, the Spirit of God comes on him and he takes on the big, big job of taking on the enemy, the enemies of Israel, and eventually they're defeated and driven out the land Something amazing happened. And he did it, 
not even with a big army of 32,000, they managed to rouse this army of 32,000 people. Thought, we've got a chance, we've got a chance here. But God says, no, 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 no. The victory's mine, and I'm going to show you that it's mine. Let's whittle that army down to 300 to go and face an army of tens of thousands. But God did it. Gideon took responsibility and took responsibility to say, God, if you're leading me, that's fine. I will do what you say. And amazing things happened. The land was restored to Israel for 40 years. 40 years. Now, recent research shows that Scotland has been in such decline, the church has been in such decline over the years, that last year, for the first time in a survey, there were more non-believers in Scotland than there were believers and today, the most recent survey, which came out a couple of weeks ago, shows that there are 60% of people in Scotland have no belief in God. Almost two out of three people in Scotland say there is no God. There is no God. Even worse than those statistics, although there's 38% people say that they are Christian, only 3% of our population worship on a Sunday morning. 3%. 97% of people in Scotland have no interest in worshipping God on a Sunday morning. Do you like those stats? They are horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. And taking it to a local level, in the ward, the political ward of Whitburn and Blackburn, there are a population of over 20,000 people. And when you think of how many churches there are and how many people are worshipping there, there's usually about 100 people worship here on a Sunday morning. If there was a hundred and all these other handful of churches, there'd only be about 600 people worship in this area on a Sunday morning, which is just under 3% of our population. So let me say this. Uh, in today's society, we like to be politically correct. You're not allowed to say anything that can cause somebody offence. You ever notice that, the term politically correct, you know where that came from? China. From the Chinese government. When the Chinese government were enforcing their policies, you could only say things that were politically correct. You could not say anything against the oppressive Chinese government. That's where the term comes from. And now I believe it's oppressive in our society. We are not allowed to speak up and say what we want to say. We're not allowed to speak biblical truths into our society. Because it's not politically correct. Is that helping our country? So I'm about to say something just now. And I hope I don't really offend anybody. But based on what I'm saying in the passage. What I've been saying with the sports psychology. Let me say this. As everybody here today gathered in this church. With those statistics that we've just read. 3% of people. 97% of people do not have any interest in worshipping God on a Sunday. We are part of the problem. We, as this church, are part of that problem. But we're also part of that solution. We're part of the problem because if we had been doing our job as we're supposed to do, and there's a list, a list of things that we're supposed to do in Scripture, if we've been doing these things, sharing the teachings of Jesus, making disciples of all nations, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting people in prison, all these kind of things, the list goes on and on and on. If we've been doing this to the best of our ability, to the best of our ability, 
Do you think there'd be more or less people worshipping God in Whitburn on a Sunday morning? We have to take responsibility. There are great things in this church. This church does wonderful things. There are wonderful people in this church who do amazing things. But it's not enough. It is not enough. Because we're failing as a church. The church universal in Scotland is failing. In the UK it's failing. Yet other churches in other nations, in China, throughout Asia, South America, Africa, the church is booming, it's growing daily. People are being added to the numbers daily. Churches are sprouting up daily. They're doing their job. They are doing their job. So, what does it mean to take responsibility? What does it look like? So I'm going to show some pictures now. The old thumbs up here. I'm going to tell you a story about a town the same size as Whitburn. Same size, roughly, as Whitburn. Um, I had the privilege of meeting a man from this area of Guatemala. I had to go and look where Guatemala was on a map after I met him. <laughs> Does anybody know where Guatemala is? Trevor. Central America, borders on Mexico, it's south of Mexico. So here's a story of a town in Guatemala called Almalonga. Probably didn't pronounce that right, but I'm not bothered about that. So this, popular, this town, it's a picture from 1979, 40 years ago, roughly. Population is 12,500. The crops are failing. It's an agricultural town. That's not a particularly healthy-looking picture. The crops are failing. It's not enough to feed the people of the town, 12,500 people. Poverty is almost absolute. The only people who are making money in this town are the mafia. The town is run by a mafia. There are four jails in the town. Four jails in a town the size of Whitburn and they're at maximum capacity. What's the focus in the town? There are 34 pubs. 34 pubs in Whitburn. Can you imagine that? And alcoholism is widespread. 34 pubs. Maybe they're making money. And what's the religion in that area? 25% are token Catholic. 75% are atheist or actively involved in the occult. That is the picture of Alma Longa, um, Guatemala's version of Whitburn, <laughs> 40 years ago. It looked like Whitburn today, David. <laughs> A home away from home. <laughs> okay, next picture. So... One day in 1979, this guy here on the left, a pastor of a, a big church of five, big congregation he's got of five people, he decides one day when the mafia, he bumps into people from the mafia and he says something to them about he doesn't like the way they treat people. And they said, oh really? So they beat him up and they took him outside the town, they stripped him naked and they put a gun to his head and they pulled the trigger. But the gun didn't work. But they left him there. And they drove away. So as he's walking back into town, he says, enough's enough. I'm going to have to do something. These people wanted to take my life today. They think I'm nothing. But God thinks I'm everything. So he made a decision with his five members of his congregation, which I think was probably his family. Well, his wife was one of them and his kids were other ones. He said, we're going to start to pray about this. We're going to pray so, next slide. One by one, people start to join them from the town. They hear about them praying every day for God to change their town. And one by one, people join them. And one by one, other people in the town start to encounter God in their life. So, more people 
start to join them. And their prayer team grows and grows day by day, week by week, month by month. More people are coming to pray with them for God to change the town. And more and more people in the town are encountering God. And so fast forward 30-odd years to the next slide. 30-odd years later, they decided one day to have a march for Jesus in their town. And 15,000 people from the town turned up to worship God in their streets. Let me tell you why 15,000 people turned up to worship God in a march for Jesus. Let's look at the next slide. 2009, that's 30 years after we first saw Alma Longa. The population has grown from 12,500 to 19,000. There has been a tenfold increase in their crops, a 1,000% increase in what their fields are producing. And now, before there was hardly enough people, uh, food to, to feed the people of the town, now there's a surplus and they're selling it to Mexico. The economy is enough to not only just sustain the, tr the town but grow it. It's almost increased by 50%. All the jails are closed. Crime has stopped. And the jails have been turned into community centres. Places for teaching. The 34 pubs became five pubs, but there are now 29 evangelical churches in the town working together. And the religion has changed. There's now 55% of the town is evangelical Christian, 25% Roman Catholic, not, not any longer token Roman Catholic, but Roman Catholic. There's still 20% are non-believers. But a massive turnaround in this town. So, next slide. So when word got out about this Alma Longa, this transformation in 30 years, the pastor um, was invited to go on a speaking tour in America. The American Christians want a wee, wee bit of this. This is a great story. Let's go and hear the story. And unfortunately, I think, maybe I'm wrong in saying this, but when something amazing happens, God does something amazing in America, all of a sudden it becomes a super church. That uh, what started off as a handful of people becomes a church of 20,000, 30,000, 40,000. People from other ch churches migrate to, to... This guy's church did become a super church from five people to thousands in Almalonga and in the town of Whitburn in Guatemala. But when he's asked to go on a speaking tour, he says, there is no point in me going on a speaking tour in America because I would only talk on one verse from Scripture. That's all I would talk about. So, next slide. The verse is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And this is what they focused on every day for 30 years. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, I want you to focus on this, heal their land. Let's see the next slides. This is what God done to a place where the crops were failing. All of a sudden, they have a tenfold increase in the yield of their crops. What a beautiful picture. Let's see the next picture. Amazingly, they started to grow giant vegetables. All of a sudden, the vegetables became the biggest vegetables you've ever seen. This was the first crop that they ever had. Look at the size of the cauliflowers it's back in the 70s. So let's see the next picture. Carrots the size of your arm started to grow in these fields. Carrots the size of your arm. Now we've got rabbits, and I love giving carrots to the rabbits, but they'd be feasting for a week on one of these carrots. Next slide. Look at the size of these cauliflowers. They're absolutely massive. 
<laughs> onions, David. Can I sell you some onions? Next. <laughs> what else have I got in stock? I've got some beetroot. Anybody want some beetroot? Um, beautiful size of these red peppers. Absolutely amazing. And then this is the surplus getting sold off to Mexico. No fertilizer is used on these crops. No commercial fertilizer. God healed their land. And it's spectacular. Now, as you drive into Whitburn, Guatemala's answer to Whitburn, it says, uh, Jesus es Señor de Almalonga, which is Jesus is Lord of Almalonga. That's the town's welcome sign. Is that not amazing? I think God deserves a round of applause for that. Huh? Before and after picture. Look at that. The horrible, horrible land. Look how lush and green it is now. All because one man took responsibility and says, I'm part of the problem. I'm going to be part of the solution. I'm going to pray with all my heart, everything that I've got every single day for this town until God does something. What can we do? We can take responsibility. I'm going to ask you this morning, are you willing to take responsibility for Whitburn and its spiritual state? So I'm going to leave you to think about that yourself. And I really want you to pray about this because I think it's embarrassing only 3% of the people in this town have any interest in God. What kind of job are we doing? We need to take responsibility. God's waiting for us to take responsibility. So, the next step. Next step. That's point number one. <laughs> That's the biggest point, don't worry. Point number two. The good news is, when we do take responsibility... Sometimes we look at ourselves and we think, I'm no good enough. But point number two is when God looks at us, he sees the purpose he created us for. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, we sometimes look at, what, where's my, my crow's feet? You know, how, how bad am I looking today? How much work do I need to put into this to make it look right? That's not how God looks at us. When God looks at us, he sees the purpose that he created us for. That's all he sees. When the angel of the Lord meets Gideon, he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior to a guy that's hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat, but he should be out in the fields. He's hiding. Mighty warrior. That's what he was created to be. And Gideon even says, I think you've got the wrong guy. My clan is the least in all of Manasseh, and I am the least member of my family. I am an absolute nobody. But the angel of the Lord says, Mighty warrior, I see what you were created for, and your purpose is about to be fulfilled. If you'll take responsibility, if you'll accept the invitation, this is the season. You're about to come into it, where all is going to be revealed. Gideon, you're going to be the man God created you to be. Behold, mighty warrior. Gideon comes round to that idea a little bit. You see, in psychology, psychologists will say that people build their self-esteem based on what they perceive their future to be. 
people I work with who are broken, that have depression or anxiety, most of their perception is, for people with depression, they, they have a negative feeling about their past and think their future is not going to be any better. They are depressed. For people who are anxious, they live in the fears of the future. They do not live in the present happiness of today. They are fearful of their future. And so, how they perform today is entirely compromised. As Christians, we have to look at the future. We have a glorious future ahead of us. No matter what happens in this lifetime that we've been given, beyond that, it's glorious. When we get to heaven and get a new body and live in paradise for all eternity with the creator of the universe. Awesome. But there's more promised in your life. I guarantee it. A few weeks ago we had uh, Jefferson and the Domingos. This is what I've written in my notes. It sounds like a band from the 60s. <laughs> Jefferson and the Domingos. Our <laughs> missionary partners in the Philippines were here a few weeks ago. And it was absolutely awesome when Jefferson stood up and gave testimony. This boy who was born on the biggest um, dump site in Manila in the Philippines and lived on that. His father was a scavenger who made his living by picking things at the dump to sell. And Jefferson says, this is the point that I, I've, I've broken it to years when he said this, I was supposed to be a scavenger. That was my future, to pick things out of a dump. But that's not what God created me for. I have now the first from my area to complete a college education. I'm the first from my area to get a job in the city working in IT. My future is I'm going to bring my family out of poverty. But I thought I was supposed to be a scavenger. That's the amazing thing that God, when God entered this boy's life, his life became entirely different. He was not created to be a scavenger. He was created to be the one that would take his family out of poverty. And he's doing it. Absolutely amazing. And the verse, sorry, next one. The verse that kept on being used that day when Jefferson was speaking was Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. God speaking says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. No matter what your perception is of yourself right now, no matter what your perception is of your future right now, let me tell you, God's got a different perception. He alone knows the plans that he has for you. He alone knew the plan that he had for Gideon. At that point, where he met Gideon in the wine press, hiding away, threshing the wheat. I would never have entered Gideon's head in a million years that he was going to be raised up to lead an army of 300 men against the many tens of thousands of the Midianites and defeat them. Never in a million years would you even contemplate that. But that was God's purpose for Gideon's life. And he fulfilled that purpose because Gideon says, I will do whatever you ask me to do. Now the good thing is, I'm coming to my third point here now. The third point here is, people often ask me, now that's all very good, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying, that God has a purpose for my life and a plan for my life. I understand that. The, the theory and the theology of it, I understand how do I go from where I am just now 
to be in, in that place where my purpose has been fulfilled. I really do believe the three most important days in anyone's life are the day that you're born, the day that you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus says that's when you are born again. And the third day is when you discover why you were created. It's a big day, and a lot of people never discover that third one, why you were created. I fully believe that the reason that I was created for the season that I've, I've been in this last number of years is to help people through psychology and to be a Christian leader. I lead two Christian charities and we've helped bring tens of thousands of people come to faith. I also believe that I was created to be uh, the best husband that my wife has ever had. I've still got a lot of work on that third one. <laughs> but here's my third point. The third point is that when you do decide to take responsibility and say, I, I, I believe there's more, and when you do accept that Jeremiah 29 verse 11, that God has a plan for your life, and you want to step forward and say, I want to move forward. I want to get deeper in my relationship with God. I want to step forward in faith. I want to fulfill that purpose and find why I was created the good thing is, point number three, God coaches us to fulfill our purpose. And that is fully illustrated in this passage with Gideon. God tolerates Gideon's doubts when he starts off, when he starts saying, I'm the least of the least, I don't know why you're talking to me. Um, if you're really calling me, um, let's, let's put this to the test. I'm going to put a fleece down, and one's going to be drying the floor wet, and then that happens, and he says, oh, no. Right, I'm going to have to do this. But let's just really make sure. Let's really make sure. Let's, let's do it the other way because maybe that was a fluke. Maybe that just happened by chance. So let's do it again and let's reverse it. And, and don't be angry with me, God, but let's, let's do it. Um, God tolerates that. I remember the first time I ever organized a Christian conference. And I was nervous. So nervous. I, I felt it so important. I wanted to get this right for God. And I was involved in every detail. And I knew exactly what the worship leaders were going to be, uh, what songs they were using all weekend. But when it came to the opening worship, I prayed and I said, Lord, don't be angry with me. But I just want to know that I have been following your lead in this. Well, will you humor me and give me a sign? And the sign I'm asking for is, I know that this song isn't supposed to come up in the worship tonight. But if you've really been working through me and I need to know, would you get the worship leaders to sing this song? And as they got to the end of their set, they said, we want to sing one more song. God really laid this on my heart. And it was the song that I prayed about. I felt totally, totally um, accepted by God in that point. God does tolerate our doubts. He does. I think I'm a couple of slides in here. That's it. Perfect. And the good thing is, when God coaches us through the various stages, I want us to think about this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. God says that my power is made perfect in your weakness. Why did God pick Gideon, who was the weakest of the weak, the least of the least? 
have a friend, Alan Jones, who is a guy who's been in over 100 countries sharing the gospel. Literally tens of thousands of people have came to faith through God working through this guy. And tens of thousands of people have been healed through God working through this guy. I, I really respect him fully. He's an amazing guy. And he said to me recently, Stephen, why do you think God chooses to pick weak people, flawed people to work through? And I started to try and come up with the most theological answer I could. Uh, and I started to bumble my way through some verses. And he said, I'll stop you there. He said, I'll tell you this. He said, I've realized over all these years that the reason that God picks weak people and flawed people to work through is because that is the only people that there are. We are all weak. We are all flawed. And sometimes we look at ourselves and say, I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as the people who stand up here. I'm not as good as the people who lead this or lead that. I could never be that good. God could never work through me in that way. What a load of nonsense. If God chooses to work through you, it's not you that does it. It's not your strength and your ability. It's his. So I'm happy to stand here this morning and share God's word because I am the weakest of the weak and I am the most flawed person. Just ask my wife. <laughs> but I know that God's strength is made perfect through me. And so God will speak this morning. So the various stages that, that Gideon goes through in this passage, there are three stages, I believe, in how God coaches you up into doing something spectacular and fulfilling your purpose in life. The first stage is Gideon says, I'm going to give you an offering. And God coaches him through how to give him the offering. He says, put the bread here, put the, put the meat here, and do this with the broth. Simple, simple stuff. Gideon follows it, and the offering is pleasing to God. I would say the first stage in my own journey of of faith and, and getting to the point where God's fulfilled his purpose was I volunteered to do the teas. As a teenager in church, I volunteered to be part of the team that did the teas after church. And I volunteered to help set up the chairs for church in the church hall on a Sunday morning. That was it. That was the limit of my ability back then. But it was the first stage. It's simple, practical stuff. Stuff that you can do in your own strength. Gideon could have done that with offering in his own strength, with his own ability. And that is the first level. So when it comes to this church and everybody here today, maybe, maybe it's, this is a, a message for you this morning where you want to step up to the next level. I would say that if you've never really done anything in the church, there was an invitation put out a few weeks back where there was a whole list of things. Hospitality, being part of doing the teas, being part of the building maintenance. Um, a list of stuff was put out you could respond to. It's all practical stuff. It's stuff that you can do within your own strength and ability. And I would suggest, and I would encourage you to accept that invitation if you've never done anything like that before in the church. Step out and start. It is the start of a wonderful journey when you start to do the practical stuff. The next stage for Gideon was when he was given the job he didn't want to do, which was tear down the altar to Baal and Asherah and put a new altar up for me. Gideon sneakily does it at night because that's the easiest way. It's the, the path of least resistance. It's the simplest way um, to do it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I took him out of his comfort zone, but he still went for the, the easiest path to do it. But he did it. He did it. He completed it. And so the next stage for me, and the next stage for, you, for yourself perhaps, is that um, in my own journey... I then went from making the teas and setting up the, the chairs to 
I started to volunteer and help. I helped in the Sunday school and the Bible class. I became a leader in the boys' brigade. And uh, I joined other organizations that, um, that do good outreach work, like Scripture Union. I volunteered to be a helper in Scripture Union camps and um, Church of Scotland summer mission teams. And I became a member of Businessmen's Fellowship, which was a, an outreach organization. That started to take me out of my comfort zone. It stretched me a bit. I had to learn some new things. I had to do a bit more praying. Um, God, will you help me with this? Will you help me with this? Maybe Gideon was praying as he did that stuff as well. As he's going under the cover of night, maybe with a polished camouflage on, I hope nobody sees us. Lord, please make it nobody sees us. And nobody did during the night, but obviously they wake up in the morning and say, who does this? Let's kill them. What a great statement that is. But finally, Gideon's last stage it's the big one. Gideon, I want to have you to lead an army that's going to defeat this enemy of Israel, the Midianites that have terrorized Israel for seven years, so much so that the people of Israel are hiding in caves up in the hills because these people are terrible. And he, he coaches them through in such a way that he gives them very precise instructions, very precise detail. He has to be listening. Gideon has to be listening to God every step of the way. And he follows all of those instructions to the letter. And it works. Even to the point of getting rid of, tell everybody it's fearful, go home. They all go home. Tell everybody that's him. Get down on their knees to lap. They have to go as well. Oh my goodness, there's only 300 left. What are we going to do now? That's okay. And he instructs them, do this, do that. And even when he was losing some of his enthusiasm and his encouragement, God says, I'm going to encourage you. Go down to the camp and listen to what they're saying. And there was fear in the camp. Gideon immediately worshipped God and they went ahead and the job got done and Israel had peace for 40 years. Everything changed politically, economically, Spiritually, they worshipped God again. Everything changed because Gideon followed the detail. I've had the privilege of stepping up to the, the next level and I've led these organizations like Businessmen's Fellowship. Um, and when you do that, I've found in my own experience, I have to listen to what God's saying. And God does take the time out to coach you one-to-one. -one. says, do this and do that and do that. One of the most recent things that's happened, which is way beyond, um, I've said before, Gideon would never have thought in a million years about leading an army of 300 against the might of Midian. But that was God's plan, and it happened. In the Businessmen's Fellowship, years ago, this is like going back to Alma Longa here, back in the 70s, 79, we used to have about 32,000 members, like Gideon's army. It was called Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International in the UK, and we had about 32,000 members. God has dwindled that down to we now have 300 members. 300. And you think, that, that's a disaster. How can we outreach with that? But God had a plan. He's deliberately dwindled us down to this 300, and he's given us very specific instructions. We now use social media in a way that we now reach on a, on a monthly basis with our 300 people, we reach over a million people a month with Christian testimony through social media. 
God instructed us to do this, this, and this. It was beyond our understanding, even revealed algorithms to use. None of us have any training on how to use social media. But now, on a daily basis, 50,000 people watch our testimony videos we put up, and over a million people a month will hear the word of God from this tiny group of 300 men. And we'll set up in two countries in Africa, in Kenya and Uganda. And in eight years now of being in Kenya and Uganda, we know of 43,000 men that have came to faith. All because we've done new things that God's kept and instructed us. Do this, do that. Hold a football tournament we did in Kenya. And at halftime, get the guys to give testimony. Even to the crowd, we actually have teams in the Kenyan Football League that are businessmen's fellowship teams and at half time and at full time we give testimony, we give an altar call and there'll be a couple of hundred people who come forward and receive Jesus and then we set them up with the local church never entered our heads but through prayer and praying, Lord how can you use this 300 flawed, weak group of men to reach the world and yet he does that's his plan what can we do as a church as we step forward I don't think that we've fulfilled our purpose as a church yet. I don't think we've fulfilled the purpose that we were created for. There's a season coming where we've got to step up our game, that we've got to take responsibility and reach that 97%. I don't have all the answers as to how that's going to happen, but I know that we do have to have an attitude adjustment. And it's down to us each individually to take that responsibility and then collectively to come together and take that responsibility and listen as to what God's asking us to do. And if we do hear and we follow, I believe, I believe spectacular, wonderful things are going to happen. That is the word of God for today. Amen.